What's going on, F5ers? This prelude is to inform you that if you're interested in my thoughts on the first and possibly only season of WandaVision, stay until after the credits roll for a bonus review. Post-credits, that's about as Marvel as it gets. I'm putting it at the end of the episode because there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen it yet and don't want to be spoiled, just stop listening after Jess and I go through our top five list topic. Again, my WandaVision review will play after the credits roll. That out of the way, enjoy the show. And now, for your feature presentation. Just one, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. I am Jason Kleberg, and this is the Force 5 Podcast, a show that features a guest that is forced to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. Today, my guest is Jess Meyer. She's one of the co-hosts and co-creators of Only You, the One and Done Podcast. She's going to join me in a bit to talk top five only children in movies, which was a fruitful topic. But first, I want to talk about a few things that I've been watching lately. I want to start with a film I really loved from 2020. This one's called The Kid Detective. I used to be loved. I used to be a kid detective. We're all really counting on you. I was so far ahead of the game. But one day I just woke up behind. This guy in my homeroom claims he's practiced with the Mets. I need to find out if he's lying. He's lying. So what can I help you with? Somebody murdered my boyfriend. Seriously? Pretty seriously. He was stabbed 17 times. Is it possible he was involved in drugs? No, he would never do drugs. Gambling? No, he would never gamble. Demon worship? No, he would never worship a demon. Here comes the kid detective. Someone's following us. This isn't safe. They're trying to see how my head works. Somebody's testing me. The Kid Detective stars Adam Brody as a once celebrated kid detective, but now he's 32 years old, continuing to solve the same trivial mysteries between hangovers and bouts of self-pity. One morning, he arrives at his office to find a naive 16-year-old girl who needs his help to solve a brutal murder. Now, I just completed a screenplay about a kid detective, so when I saw this pop up on my radar, I felt obligated to check it out. And I gotta say, I love this film. It's a dark, small-town mystery with a brilliant cast of characters and much-needed moments of delightful comedy, not unlike other favorites of mine like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Brick. Adam Brody plays Abe Applebaum. At 13, he was the talk of the town, solving these small cases left and right, and even earning a key to the city from the mayor for his work recovering some stolen money. However, shortly after that, he couldn't solve a big case that really hit close to home. And at 32, the guilt still consumes him, changing him from a confident, whip-smart detective into a kind of a lost soul. Brody plays the unsure gumshoe to perfection, often showing us small glimpses of a genius repressed deep inside of an exhausted, unhappy shell. Sophie Nelise, she's a French actress, I hope I'm saying that name right, she plays Carolyn, a young woman whose boyfriend was murdered. She's great as Brody's main sidekick through the film, even if she's not really used for much other than driving him around. My guess is that we'll be seeing a lot more of her very soon. The writing by Evan Morgan, who also directed the film, is snappy, it's funny, and it never gets goofy enough to stall the serious bits of the film from landing. It's a very smart film that will reward additional viewings. 
Like most movie fans, I was trying to figure out the mystery, but I'll be damned if my brain wasn't stumbling around like a cow trying to walk across a dance floor. The small town noir crime flick has always kind of been one of my favorite genres, like a comfort film genre, and the kid detective snuggles right in with my favorites. I'm going to keep shouting the kid detective from the rooftops because this thing is great. If you're down for a little neo-noir by way of kind of a darker nice guys, this is the flick for you. Brody is awesome, the script is engaging, the cinematography is way better than it needs to be, and the mystery will definitely keep you guessing until the bitter end. Personally, I hope we get more of Abe Applebaum in the future. Next up, I saw a film from 1989 called Shakedown. One thing I promise not to do in this courtroom is to pretend to you that I am representing Snow White for a client. An overworked lawyer. Once upon a time, all I plan to do is play the tennis sax forever. An undercover cop. This gun is clean. No serial numbers. They're up against a city where the bad guys have taken over. My client will make bail. And the good guys are the worst of all. You cops, you're the best that money can buy. Fifty K a month in evidence disappears. Plan on taking down an army? I don't know yet. Shakedown was a suggestion from listener Rick Bodie. Thanks for the suggestion. Shakedown is about a drug dealer who shoots an undercover cop dead in Central Park. This is in New York City, and he pleads self-defense. Roland Dalton, played by Peter Weller. He's a lawyer leaving for Wall Street. He finds himself on the case, and while digging for evidence, finds himself on the wrong end of some corrupt cops. Luckily, he's got help. Eccentric narcotics agent Richie Marks, played by Sam Elliott, is also on the case. He might live like shit, but he doesn't shoot like shit. Shakedown lives and dies on the lead actors, and they absolutely deliver. Peter Weller is great as Roland, a smooth-talking NYC defense attorney. Sam Elliott essentially plays his version of Riggs here from Lethal Weapon, albeit a little older. In fact, he looks old in 1989, but he also doesn't look like he's aged since then. There's also a quick glimpse of John C. McGinley, which is always welcome. What's going on, Dr. Cox? The action scenes might be few and far between, but they are very well done. Particularly thrilling is a chase between a drug dealer who steals a cop car and two stuntmen who look absolutely nothing like our two heroes as they hijack a three-wheel motorcycle and rip through a homeless encampment. There's also a very Beverly Hills Cop 3 type of scene in which Sam Elliott's Richie chases a perp on foot and ends with a short fight on a moving Coney Island roller coaster. The film pops between police work and the courtroom trial of Michael Jones, the man who mowed down the undercover cop. Now, I'm not a big courtroom drama fan, but the scenes are short enough, and Weller is really charismatic in the role. As for the things I didn't like about the film, I could have done without the melodrama of Roland's family life, specifically the fact that the lawyer opposite of him in the trial is the ex that he still has feelings for. I didn't think that stuff added anything to the plot and would have made absolutely no difference had it been omitted. There's a chase scene featuring a cab driver who is taking Weller to the courthouse that is beyond cheesy, and the conclusion of that scene was horribly written and made absolutely no sense, as the cab driver drives full speed ahead at a police blockade that's set conveniently in front of construction happening at the courthouse. The cab driver then voluntarily smashes his car into a crane hook, hooking the roof of his car. 
The guy piloting the crane then looks at the car, shrugs like, well, just another day in NYC, and moves the car over the police blockade. And when he puts the car down, there's like a dozen or so cops pointing guns at Weller as he exits the car. And the judge, who's presiding over the case, walks down the courthouse steps, pulls him from justice because, quote, you're the law in New York City, but I'm the law on these courthouse steps. At which point, a court police officer points a gun at an NYC police officer's head. There's also some questionable green screen work, specifically during a sequence involving a plane that looks, oh, it looks terrible, but I guess that's to be expected. I thought it was kind of endearing, but it's yet another sequence that doesn't really make sense if you look at it logically, and I won't spoil that for you, because I do think that Shakedown is a movie worth seeing. And of course, we get late 80s New York City, and it's always such an ugly treat to see on screen. It's just packed with degenerates, dilapidated 42nd Street, and more mullets than you could shake a stick at. It is truly a sight to behold. Shakedown is an enjoyable police courtroom drama with solid performances all around. Peter Weller stands out as a clear star here, and even though the script has moments that are nothing short of idiotic, this is still worth checking out if you're into late 80s cop dramas with a little bit of action peppered in. I also caught the new Joe Carnahan film, Boss Level, this week. Hey, Jake, can I get a large bottle of that Bijou? You know what? Make it two large bottles. Because tomorrow isn't guaranteed. You have no idea. I used to complain that every day felt the same. And now every day is the same. Seriously. Shoes, pants, rip them, flip them. Okay, coffee anyone? I don't know how this is possible. But I keep repeating the same day. As many times as I've seen this happen to my apartment, I still can't help but think I'm never, ever getting my security deposit back. Boss Level is about a retired Special Forces operative named Roy, and he's stuck reliving the same day over and over again, a day in which he's repeatedly killed for reasons he doesn't quite understand by a rogues gallery of assassins, each with their own style of mayhem. One of these days, Roy finds out new information and decides that it's time to end the loop. I gotta say, this movie is a ton of fun. I'm a sucker for a good Groundhog's Day film. In fact, Palm Springs was probably my favorite film of 2020. And just like that movie, Boss Level drops us right into the life of a man who's lived the same day over and over again with a highly engaging and funny action scene right off the bat. Par for the course, as he learns more, we learn more, all presented with a video game aesthetic that I actually really enjoyed. The cast here is great. Frank Grillo plays Roy. He's a jaded man who's just kind of tired of getting up early each morning to stop his own death. He's perfect in the role and in just incredible shape. The dude looks ripped. We don't get much of Naomi Watts or Hollywood's man of a thousand chances, Mel Gibson, but they are awesome as usual. Selena Lowe, who plays Guan Yin, is really great as the only assassin that gets a decent amount of screen time. The action is really cool. The violence is unrelenting. I mean, we get to see Roy literally lose his head tons of times. I had so much fun with the small flashbacks to other attempts that led to Roy's death in super creative ways, including, but not limited to, being run over by a truck, flying through a bus, and getting shot in the balls. 
It uses the Groundhog's Day formula in very interesting ways as Roy retains the information that he had the previous day. And the action is the main focus, of course, but the film had a surprising amount of heart as well. I only really have two bits of criticism. First, the film gives us all these really cool assassins that feel like they were plucked straight out of Carnahan's smoking aces, but we really don't see much of them aside from Guan Yin. Some are on screen for less than a minute, but they seemed like a really fun bunch that I'd have liked to see more of. The other criticism I have about the movie is how it ends. It's a very ambiguous ending, and it just kind of gives me the feeling that the screenwriters didn't know how to end it. I am not against ambiguous endings, but this is not an Inception kind of movie, and I don't think that we need to leave this one up to the imagination. I had a great time with Boss Level. This is one that I will definitely watch again and probably add to the Blu-ray collection. It doesn't really add anything new to the old formula of person relives the, the same day over and over again, but it's a ton of fun, has a great cast, and is infused with way more feeling that actually lands than most action movies are. That's Boss Level, from 2021, you can find it on Hulu right now. That being said, I thought this movie was super cool. You know what else is super cool? Refrigeration. It's time for our sponsor. When you need to stay cool, you can count on Bob Vance and the team at Vance Refrigeration. For over 40 years, Bob Vance and Vance Refrigeration have been proudly serving the refrigeration needs of the greater Scranton area. Advanced Refrigeration, Bob Vance's factory-trained technicians are ready to service all residential and commercial refrigeration systems, and every product or service comes with Bob Vance's one-year no-worry guarantee. Bob Vance and Vance Refrigeration, they'll get the job done. That's a promise. This is the Force 5 Podcast, and joining me from Seattle tonight, we've got Jess from Only You, the One and Done Podcast. How's it going, Jess? Hello, I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about your podcast? Sure. So basically, we started our podcast because we decided to have an only child. And after having made that decision, we noticed a lot of people were not that cool about it. So we started yeah. this podcast to kind of create a community and sort of help alleviate some of the stigma because... Right now in our society, it seems like people have a lot of judgments about it, and they're very undue. I never really thought about the stigma of having an only child, and we are contemplating having you know, our child be an only child. So when I first saw the podcast pop up on my feed, it's my first thought was, why does there really need to be a podcast about this? But the more you listen to it and the more you think about it, people just don't think having an only child is like a normal thing, and it really should be. Yeah, and... What's really weird is that statistically it's becoming more and more common, but it just doesn't seem like society is really catching up with it because friends and family, people really close to me, they make little comments about how only children are spoiled or how they're going to grow up and have a hard time making friends or all these kind of snap judgments that people don't really realize that they're doing. But once you're actually the parent of an only child, I think you start to notice it a little more. Yeah, and uh, it went from, when are you going to have a kid, to when are you going to have another kid? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The comments just never seem to stop. Like immediately. I was like a month after having her, and people were already asking where her sibling was. <laughs> yeah, let me get some sleep first before I answer this question. <laughs> well, your kid is uh, just, she's uh, 18 months old now? Yep, she is. Cool, and mine's two and a half both great kids, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about 
only children in films. Top five only children. Should be a good list. I think so. Yeah. And part of our podcast is every time we do an episode, we actually pick one only child from pop culture. So I have this list. Some of them we've talked about. Some of them we haven't. But I feel like I watch movies a little differently now. I'm looking for that only child. Usually it's a background character. Sometimes it's the main character. But their archetypes tend to be similar. I agree. I found that in my in my research, too. Did you have any rules when you were building your list, like rules that you wanted to keep yourself to? Well, I really wanted to stay away from the really negative tropes. So the last person on my list is um, a good indicator of some of those negative stereotypes, but I tried to highlight more of the positive attributes in my list. Besides that, it's just stuff that I've seen, stuff that I've liked. Cool. Yeah, I think the only real requirement for me during my research was these had to be only children that I really liked seeing on screen. And I tried to keep it to their the fact that they were an only child contributing to the storyline of the movie. Okay, sure. That being said, let's get to the list. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? Top five only children in films. All right, Jess, let's hear it. Who's your uh, your number five? So the first movie on my list is Uptown Girls. Are you really Tommy Gunn's daughter? I can't believe it. <laughs> Molly Gunn was a rock and roll princess. I'm a fan of your father's thanks. Who led a charmed life. What is that? He was going to be my curry dinner one night, but we fell in love. This one's for you. Can I have him for my birthday? Molly, focus. Until reality... Your electric has been canceled. Who pays your bills? Bob. Gave her a wake-up call. Bob Kapowski disappeared. With a hundred million dollars. Now, the girl who never grew up. So what do I do about money? I chose this one because there's two only children in the movie. And I felt like it was a really good example of kind of the two ways that they're portrayed. So Brittany Murphy's character, she's like a very spoiled, uh, like rich only child. Her father was a famous musician, and she ends up being the nanny to another only child who's also very rich, also very spoiled, but she's a lot more straight-laced, and Brittany Murphy's character is a lot more easygoing and fun-loving. So when you get them two together, they definitely clash. Sure. This is one that I have not seen before. <laughs> it's a it's like a cute movie. I don't think it won any awards or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it has a young Dakota Fanning. I think she's like seven or eight in the movie. And I just think it's really cute. When it goes to her character, she is very, very neurotic. So she's like eight, but she acts like she's like 45 years old. So it sort of has that wise beyond their years archetype that you find in a lot of only child movies and she's a hypochondriac she's very rigid in her routines and her schedules and then Brittany Murphy character shows up and she's just um I don't even know she's free-spirited essentially and she tries to kind of teach this younger girl how to have fun so it's really cute and they sort of bond over being lonely as kids Basically, it's it's kind of a heartwarming story. Cool. Uptown Girls. 
My number five is also a kid that's free-spirited from the movie Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made. Do you know why you're here, Timmy? Mistakes were made. Just so you know, whatever you share with me in this room stays in this room. This is a safe space. So no bugs. Bugs. Listening devices. Oh, no. Greetings, fellow humans. What you are about to see is a historical record of my life as a detective. I live in the shadow of this water tower in Portland, Oregon, a place where things get strange. I am the CEO of my own detective agency. He's so fascinating. And the character is Timmy Failure. It's a kid's movie. It's more, it's probably like a seven or eight year old kid's movie. Timmy Failure is this kid who is really kind of eccentric and out there and he does not care. He is not going to conform. He has an imaginary friend in the form of this giant white polar bear and his polar bear is named Total. So together they run a junior detective agency in Portland called Total Failure. When I say he runs a detective agency, it's run out of his bedroom and and the cases he (laughs) solves are for kids around the neighborhood. But this is this is how he has fun. He has fun cracking cases. And this polar bear manifested as a way for Timmy to deal with his dad leaving them. So it's just him and his mom. And uh, when his failure mobile, which is a Segway, goes missing, he jumps on the case. So that's what the, the film is about. Timmy failure as a character is really, really endearing. When I said he's out there, he's just a different type of kid, but he does not care. He's all about it. I love his confidence. It's possible that he's on the spectrum, but the film never specifically says that. Interesting. Yeah, he's just such an endearing character, and the adults in the film treat him kind of as a nuisance. <laughs> I always, I thought he was like really sharp, really funny. I really like this film, and I think that critics actually liked it too for the most part. And the, the polar bear in it looks awesome. I really liked it. So Timmy Failure is my number five. That sounds fantastic. One thing that I have noticed that's a common theme, and it's sort of one of those things like once you see it, you'll always see it. Usually one of the parents has left or passed away. That's um, a trope of the only child. And in both of the ones we just listed, that's the case. It's interesting that movies and TV kind of make that one of the only legitimate reasons parents can have for having an only child. It's either True. that or one, a, one or both parent are very, very high up in business. Like they're a high level executive and just don't have time for their kids. You'll see both of those stereotypes a lot. It's interesting you say that. Now that I'm looking at my list, I have three on here with one parent missing. And there was one that almost made my list that was a top level executive that just didn't have time. <laughs> yeah. You'll see it a lot. All right, on to your number four. So my number four is uh, Hermione from Harry Potter. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. Great pick. I think so, too. I think she 
exemplifies everything that is wonderful and great about only children and especially female only children. I think that she is really smart and wise beyond her years and strong-willed. And I think she's a really great role model for all girls, but especially only children. I've only seen one Harry Potter film. That's oh like a confession I'm making on this podcast. <laughs> you need to but, that. <laughs> yes. Is there her being an only child, does that work into her character at all in the films? Not that I can remember. I'm not a huge fan. I've only seen the movies and I read the books when I was younger. But I don't think it's a it's a main part of her storyline. Um, the fact that she is half muggle is more a part of her storyline. One of her parents isn't magical. But to me, what really represents her being an only child is the fact that she formed such strong bonds with Ron and Harry. Another thing you'll find about only children in TV and movies is that they find like a tribe. And she's a really good example of that, where in lieu of having siblings, like somebody else to hang around with at Hogwarts, she found Harry and Ron and they became thick as thieves through the entire series. Let's continue that trope with my number four. My number four is somebody who also found a tribe and that's Scotty Smalls from The Sandlot. You ever have a paper out? I helped the guy once. Okay. Well, tuck it like you would throw a paper. When your arm gets here, just let go. Just let go. It's that easy. How do I catch it? Just stand there and stick your glove out in the air. I'll take care of it. Nice. Yeah, Scotty Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls. So (laughs) Scotty is an only child, and he also had a single parent, but his mom gets remarried, so now he has a stepdad, and they move to the San Fernando Valley. This is in 1962. Scotty has no friends when he moves to this new town, and he feels like it's really hard to make friends because he's always been stereotyped as a nerd, which I guess in the 60s was a bad thing. (laughs) Uh, Now it's kind of like nerds are cool, but yeah, up until, I mean, I guess all the way through like family matters with Urkel being a nerd was considered a bad thing. So his stepdad doesn't really want to spend time with him or have time to spend with him. And the mom doesn't really spend time with him. So they just tell him to get out of the house and go make friends. And he finds this pack of friends, the Sandlot crew. They're just a bunch of kids that go out and play baseball in the summer. And eventually, he makes friends with them. He gains their respect. And it's a really great cast of characters. I can't think of anybody who hasn't seen The Sandlot. Sure. Oh, it's a fantastic movie. It actually came up on my sports movies. It was my favorite baseball movie of all time. And Scotty Smalls is a big part of that. He shows a lot of bravery in the film. Like I said, he earns their respect. And he grows up and he stays friends with Benny the Jet Rodriguez becoming a baseball announcer while uh, Benny plays for Major League Baseball. So That's right. Scotty Smalls, my number four. That's a great one. Okay, so my number three is another kind of fun movie. It is Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. One of the reasons I wanted to come here tonight was to discuss our future. Of course. I plan on running for office someday. I think we should break up. What? Elle... If I'm going to be a senator, I need someone serious. I'm seriously in love with you. I love you. Liar! This is the type of girl that Warner wants to marry. A law student. 
only way I'm gonna get the love of my life back. For my admissions essay, Action. I'm gonna tell all of you why I'm gonna make an amazing lawyer. I feel comfortable using legal jargon in everyday life. I object. Ooh, I didn't even realize that she was an only child until right now. Yeah, so she fits a couple of the tropes. Um, another way only children are represented a lot is being rich. Uh, that's another sort of like excuse that parents have for having an only child is that they're very, very wealthy. Don't know why those two are linked, <laughs> but they are. Uh, and in the movie, and especially in the beginning, she's got this huge group of friends in her sorority. So she has a bunch of sisters, her sorority sisters, but she does not have any actual siblings. One thing I really like about her and that I think is so interesting as an only child is that she is very popular and she's very charismatic, which defies some of those stereotypes. But underneath all of that, she's actually really driven and smart. And when she puts her mind to something, she's able to accomplish it. And for only children, we talk about this a little bit as well, they aren't used to anybody telling them they can't do something. So sometimes they come off as spoiled, but other times they just come off as people who can really make life whatever they want it to be. And in some ways, it's really, really a positive thing. So she's a world changer. She's very, very smart, very driven. And I think she makes a great only child. That's a perfect segue into my number three yet again. So thank you for that. <laughs> We're going to go to another very smart, very driven female only child. And that's Diane Court from 1989's Say Anything. Well, what a day, huh? Yeah. What a day. Yeah. Yeah. Quick question. Do you, do you know who I am? Yes. We sat together at Bell Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember? You remember? No, I read it on the message. Okay, um, so it's Lloyd, and, um, uh, let's go out. You want to go out? Oh, thanks, but I'm busy. Busy? Yes. Things are pretty hectic right now, but thanks. You busy on Friday? Yeah, I have to help my father. Are you busy on Saturday? Saturday, I have some things to do around the house. So you're, so you're monumentally busy? Well, not monumentally. Oh, my gosh. Great movie. From your neck of the woods in Seattle, too. Yeah. Diane is the daughter of Jim Court. Uh, she was forced by a judge to choose between her mom and dad, and oh she God. chose to go with dad. Yeah, so traumatic there. As yeah. a young child, she's forced to choose. Chooses dad because, in her words, I believe she said it was just safer. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. She earns the role of valedictorian at her high school, and the movie starts with her graduation speech. Shortly after that, she learns that she's earned a British academic scholarship. So she's got a really great future ahead of her. And with just a few weeks before leaving for England, she's juggling work, she's studying, and this budding romance with the hopelessly optimistic Lloyd Dobler, played amazingly by John Cusack. Through her whole life, she's only had her dad to talk to because she hasn't had any siblings. And her dad is hyper-focused on her as his only child. And he truly, I think he truly wants what's best for her, but he's definitely overbearing. He tries to dictate her decisions, and in many cases in the film does. But it's like, as the only child, she's only had her father the, for her whole life. 
in one scene, she's reading quotes from her yearbook, which say like, I wish I got to know you. You know, it's nice to finally meet you when she went to school with these people for four years because it was essentially her books and her dad that took up all of her time. Of course, in the end, she's finally able to make those decisions for herself and, uh, and grow as a person. But I think this is one of those picks where her being an only child really worked itself into the story nicely because her dad just wants what's best for his kid. And it's also got the, uh, the wealthy trope in there. The yeah. dad's kind of wealthy. You'll find sure. out why when you watch the film. But yeah, it's Say Anything is a great film. It came up on my list of top five directorial debuts just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Cameron Crowe's first film, Say Anything, from 1989. Wow, I can't wait to rewatch that in the lens of an only child. I love <laughs> yeah. that movie. And thinking back on it, it makes a lot of sense. But it's not something I picked up on when I when I watched it before. That's great. All right, on to your number two. Okay, so my number two is going to be Charlie from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. How does it make you feel to be the first golden ticket finder? I'm a... Mike, the country wants to hear from you. The world is waiting. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. You're a rotten mean father. You never give me anything I want. I won't go to school till I have it. Violet. Call it, mother. Open it, Charlie. Let's see that golden ticket. Wouldn't that be fantastic? It's not fair to raise his hopes. Never mind. Go on, open it, Charlie. I want to see that gold. Stop it, Dad. I've got the same chance as anybody else, haven't I? I never dreamed that I would climb over the moon in ecstasy, but nevertheless, it's there that I'm shortly about to be. Because I've got a golden ticket. I've got a golden chance to make my way. And with a golden ticket, it's a golden day. What really stuck out to me as far as being an only child is that you set the scene and Charlie lives in a house full of adults, full of like much older adults. And they're all in like the bed and he's sort of is spoken to and acts like just another one of them which is something you see with only children a lot too when they're not being, you know, hovered over like in your example, they're sort of just treated as another adult. And throughout the movie, you kind of watch all these other children at the chocolate factory acting like children. And you see Charlie and his grandpa kind of neck and neck as far as maturity level goes. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting how sometimes these only children can just be very mature for their age and be stereotyped that way. He's the perfect only child to me because he does seem really wise and he understands what a great opportunity he has in front of him. And he just takes it in such stride and with such confidence and maturity. He's just, uh, he's an only child gone right. Great pick. Let's see, my number two, we're gonna go, uh, we're gonna go pretty fun with my number two. This is probably one of the movies that I've seen the most in my life. And the character is Jim from 1999's American Pie. Oh, Jim, you're here. Uh, I was just uh, walking by your uh, your room. And, uh, and you, you know, I was thinking, uh, boy, it's been a long time since we've had a little father-son uh, uh, chat. Oh, I, I almost forgot. I, uh, I, uh, I bought some magazines. Do you want to just flip to the uh, center section? Well, this is the this is the uh, female form, and uh, they have uh, focused on the breasts, uh, which are used uh, primarily to uh, feed. 
young infants, and um, and also uh, in foreplay. Right. <clears throat> this is uh, this is Hustler, and this is a much more exotic magazine. Now they have decided to focus more on the uh, pubic uh, region, right. uh, the whole groin area. Uh huh. Look at the expression on her face. You see that? See what she's doing? She's kind of looking right into your eyes, saying, Hey, big boy. Hey, how you doing? You see? Right. Do you yes. know what a clitoris is? Oh, my God. Well, yes, I, mean, don't I say, know oh, what a clitoris oh, you do? is. Oh, yes. I see. Yes, you do. I forgot you've been there and well, back. I, I, you know I've everything. learned about you know, it in I'm sex ed. You know, I, I really don't need you to sit here and talk to me about clitoris. You know what? You know what? I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, American Pie is, for me, it was like the quintessential teenage sex comedy. Uh, it's the tale of these four friends in high school on a mission to lose their virginity before prom night. Again, it's got that the only child finds a pack mentality. Um, but the reason I love this, I mean, most of the teen movies coming out in the late 90s were PG-13 comedies or romantic comedies like 10 Things I Hate About You or Never Been Kissed or... The, that slew of nerdy girl becomes the hot girl comedies. And then this one came out. It was a hard R with kids who spoke just like my friends and I experienced in high school. Uh, and then it had a lot of sex that me and my friends didn't experience in high school. <laughs> but, but at the heart of it was a great cast of characters with tons of chemistry. And the main character is Jim, an only child who, I mean, if you're not familiar with American Pie, get familiar with American Pie. But he, uh, he, at one point, makes love to a pie. Uh, his, <laughs> him being an only child, though, works into the story because his parents are definitely overprotective. Uh, his father, who is one of the classic movie fathers played by Eugene Levy, uh, often barges in on him at inappropriate times. And he tries to teach his, his son about life, about the birds and the bees. His dad also treats him very much like a friend. So uh, I, I was going to ask you if it was Eugene Levy that was his dad, because I don't remember the movie that well, but I do remember Eugene Levy always coming in the room and being like, hey, kids, <laughs> always <laughs> wanting to like be a part of the gang. So I thought maybe it was him. Yep, it is him. He he barges in Jim's room in the first one. In the second one, he barges into Jim's dorm room for more antics. Just just a classic overbearing, overprotective, wannabe friendly dad. I think that the overbearing parent is more rare than the totally um, disconnected parent. Like you see a lot more often that the parents are just too busy to be around or they're doing business or whatever it is that they do. It's not as often doing that you business. see doing business. It's never specified what, just business in general. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, but it's not as often that you see like a very heavily involved parent. All right. On to, wow, already on to your number one. If you had asked me a couple years ago what movie I have seen the most in my life, uh, I would have said something very different. But I'm a mom now. So the movie <laughs> I've probably seen most in my life now is Moana. <laughs> Uh, Maui, shape shifter, demigod. 
of the wind and sea. I am hero of men. What? It's actually Maui shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, hero of men. I interrupted from the top, hero of men. Go. I'm not going on a mission with some little girl. This is my canoe, and you will journey to different. Did not see that coming. The ocean is a friend of mine. First, we've got to go through a whole ocean of bad. Kakamora. Kako, what? They're kind of cute. Moana is honestly maybe the best soundtrack of a Disney movie. And oh, I'm fantastic. a 90s kid. Like, I had some great soundtracks. I had Aladdin and Little Mermaid and all of this stuff. But I'm telling you, Moana beats them all. Great, great music. And the movie itself is actually very empowering. She has overbearing parents where they're worried about her and they don't want her to get too close to the ocean and they don't want her to do all these different things. And she tries to respect them and their boundaries, but in her heart, she wants to be more and she wants to be brave. And so it's an interesting perspective of someone who isn't necessarily rebellious, but just so driven and smart and passionate that she has to follow her dreams. Just drawn to the water. And the songs that you're talking about were all composed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. That's right. I mean, I think everybody's heard the Moana soundtrack, but I agree with you. I think it is one of the best Disney, just overall, the songs are, are amazing. Totally. As far as a movie that I have to watch over and over again because I have a toddler, I don't really mind this one. It's pretty nice to have on in the background. The music is great, <laughs> and I think it's a good story. Uh, she she has a tribe, so she does have that sort of community in the movie that a lot of only children uh, strive for or, or really like to have around them. Um, her parents are super involved. You could make the argument that her dad is high up in business, but he's actually just the leader <laughs> of the tribe. It's his um, own type of business. Sure, of the type of business that existed at the time in this world. Um, but yeah, I I think that she is my number one favorite only child in any movie. You're just really great at, uh, at working in segues to my films because my top one is also a Disney movie. And I noticed this while thinking about it most Disney movies have only children with single parents. Yep. And another one that I almost put on my list, I almost put on my list was The Lion King. Mm. The Disney movie that I chose is Nemo from Finding Nemo in 2003. Oh, that's a good one. I gotta find my son Nemo! <laughs> Fish are friends, not food. <laughs> Grab shell, dude! Grab what? No hurling on the shell, dude, okay? Just waxed it. Nemo, of course, is a clownfish who has this underdeveloped fin, and his dad, Marlin, is very overprotective, which is kind of the catalyst for the whole film because Nemo's so sheltered as an only child that uh, he's swept away by um, scuba divers after he heads towards a speedboat to prove that he can do things that his dad doesn't think he can do. Nemo's an only child because... When he was an egg, a barracuda came and ate 
Marlon's wife, Nemo's mom, and all the other eggs. So it's literally just Marlon and Nemo. Nemo finds himself in this small aquarium inside of a dentist's office in Sydney, Australia, with impending doom because new fish are often given to the dentist's niece named Darla, who does not take care of fish. And then Marlon has to go on an adventure with, uh, with Dory to search for Nemo. Nemo finds friends inside of his aquarium. He shows leadership. He shows that he's brave. He's super friendly and outgoing. He just wants to make friends. And in the second film, he shows even more bravery because he's the one that leads the quest to find Dory's parents. So yeah, I had to have I had to have Nemo, which is Finding Nemo is one of my wife's favorite films. So I had to have this on this list. It's a great movie. And in our house, it is kind of hard for me sometimes to watch Disney movies in general because so many of them have something bad happen to one of the parents. And I hate watching that as a new parent. That's terrible. Like, it's it's just very upsetting. Um, and so it's kind of hard to find a Disney movie that doesn't have some sort of traumatic parent story. But as far as those go, Nemo is an incredible movie. I absolutely love it. I love Dory's character. And I think that a lot of parents can kind of relate to Marlon, uh, his anxiety and having a child with a disability, I'm sure is very relatable to some, but it's a really, really great movie with a lot of heart. Most of the single parents are males, and most of the only children are females in Disney movies. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Yeah, I I do not know. There were a ton of honorable mentions that I didn't put on my list, but wish I could have had on my list. I know you had some honorable mentions as well from both movies and TV, perhaps. What were some of those ones that didn't make your list that you uh, that you wish you could have talked about? Well, I tried to keep this mostly to movies because it is a movie-oriented podcast, but I'm actually a lot more um, well-versed in the TV world. So one of the ones I wanted to talk about was Bobby Hill from King of the Hill. Oh, that's a good one. He's hilarious. He's way wise for his years. Like, he's a 90-year-old at heart. And he's very much treated like an adult by his parents. They even have an episode in like a fairly, you know, silly adult animation. They have an episode about infertility. So it gets pretty deep. And Hmm. the reasons behind him being an only child are talked about a lot with Hank's (laughs) narrow urethra. Um, (laughs) But I, I just love him as an only child. And then the other one that I could probably spend a lifetime talking about is Gilmore Girls, because in that show, almost every character is an only child. That's the uh, one-parent scheme as well, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, yeah. So Rory is one of the main characters. She's an only child. Her her dad kind of just left the picture early on. And then her mom, Lorelai, is also an only child. Her parents are very high up in business. <laughs> <laughs> And um, of course they are. Yeah, of course. And then as you get deeper into the show, you find, you know, a lot of the people Rory associates with her friends, her best friends, Lane and Paris are both only children. Jess, one of the people she dates is an only child. Like there are more only children than not in that show, uh, which I think is really interesting. And they're all portrayed as really, really smart. Um, There's the thing about the quick 
dialogue in that show. Everyone yeah. talks really fast, a lot of back and forth. So all these only children are portrayed as just being very strong-willed, very smart, very driven. And I just personally really like the way that they show them. I've got a couple of honorable mentions. I've got some from movies, some from TV. So I'll start with my movies ones, I suppose. We could have really done this with uh, superheroes alone because most superheroes, Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, they're all only children. Uh, Another one that almost made my list was Mark Evans from The Good Son, played by Elijah Wood. I don't know if you're familiar with The Good Son from 1993. No, I haven't seen that. It's a movie about, it's it's the famous movie where Macaulay Culkin played a bad guy. Mark Evans, who his mom passes away and his dad is high up in business. So <laughs> he gets sent with to, to live with aunt and uncle. And uh, Macaulay Culkin is his cousin, Henry, and Henry is a psycho. And the reason this came up on my list is because I was looking for, I was wondering if Macaulay Culkin had ever played an only child. And there's very, there's it's really rare for him to play an only child because his father was his agent and got really powerful in Hollywood at that time because Macaulay Culkin was such a hot item that he wanted his other kids to play roles in movies. So he almost always had one of his actual siblings playing his sibling in a movie. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah, so uh, that one almost made my list. John Connor from the Terminator series almost made my list. And then uh, Katie from Mean Girls, played by Lindsay Lohan. Almost made my list oh, as well. Oh, that's such a good one. And then I had a couple from TV shows. Dawson from Dawson's Creek, an only child. Will Smith from uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He's an only child who goes Ooh, to live with his one. Aunt Viv and Uncle Phil. And then, of course, the quintessential only child, Michael Scott, oh. who from The Office, who at one point he talks about wanting to have 100 kids so he could have 100 friends because he never had friends when he was little because he was an only child it was like a heartbreaking scene but when I thought only children I wanted to talk about Michael Scott so bad because it's so built into his psyche that he needs to be around friends and have a pack of friends because he was an only child right and it totally makes sense how the office becomes like a like a tribe of friends a total community instead of a normal office with normal boundaries because everyone (laughs) becomes his family you do see that a lot with only children both in tv and in real life that they definitely make what could be an acquaintance or a friend into a lifelong family member they have this way of just pulling someone in and making sure they stay around forever yep and if you want more about only children in pop culture check out the pop culture segment within only you the one and done podcasts Like you said, you have one every show where you kind of discuss an only child in media. So, yeah, go there for more. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you could work it into your into your show. Uh, We do our podcast once a week. We do a full episode, and then every other week we do an interview with somebody who's either an expert in the field or we do a mini episode that's something a little bit more silly. Uh, Right now on our website, onlyupodcast.com, we're giving away this printable of uh, little parenting mantra cards that are really cool. I made them myself, so you can go check that out. Otherwise, just uh, tune in. 
Cool. Yeah, go check out the podcast. I described it to my wife as being very relaxing, but at the same time, very charismatic. <laughs> That's so sweet. I, uh, I like it a lot. And even if you're not a parent, if you're thinking about having kids, you should listen to this podcast because it might not be until after you're a parent that you decide that you only want one kid, which was kind of the case in, in our world. It was, we're going to have some kids. And then once we had one, it was maybe we'll just have one. So right. you never Absolutely. know. <laughs> There's also people out there, I think that want to have kids, but they're kind of afraid to, for women to be pregnant a bunch of times. And some people don't even consider that one is an option. Like if I knew I was only ever going to be pregnant the one time, maybe I wouldn't have worried about it so much. So <laughs> I think that there's yeah. a lot of really great positives to having an only child if you're fortunate enough that it is a choice. And even if you just know someone who has an only child, they might be feeling a lot more stigmatized than you know. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been really fun. Yeah, thanks again for coming on. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. If you want to be a guest on the Force 5 podcast, the only requirement is that you love movies and want to talk about them. So if you have a top five list that you want the world to discuss, head to the website force5podcast.com, which has a show request form and other Force 5 related content. Go rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow the Force 5 podcast on Instagram and Twitter so you can tell me which picks we missed. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some films starring only children. Force 5. Hey, you stuck around. Here come my thoughts on WandaVision. It's twilight time. Wanda and Vision. Aren't we a five pair? This is our home now. I want us to fit in. Oh, this is gonna be a gas! Where did you two move from? How long have you been married? And why don't you have children yet? Our story. I think what my wife means to say is that we moved from... Moved from where? Married when? Damn it, why? Oh, Arthur, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Welcome to WandaVision, a TV show starring Wanda Maximoff and Vision set in Westview, New Jersey. Westview is an idyllic small town where everything is as it should be, except the time period, and the residents, and the witches. Wait, what is going on? I think what Kevin Feige has done while overseeing the last 10 years of Marvel films is nothing short of astounding. Taking the Marvel Cinematic Universe from Iron Man to Avengers Endgame is a feat that I am convinced will never be recreated as much as other studios have tried. WandaVision is the kickoff of the next big phase of the Marvel Universe, and although it wasn't perfect, I think it's a fun appetizer for the next decade. The concept of the show, especially with how it started, took massive balls. Disney is playing with house money and they're taking risks that a normal weekly show would probably never take. The first three episodes have almost nothing to do with the overarching plot. We spend the first hour and a half of WandaVision with light-hearted recreations of different eras of television. We get episodes reminiscent of Bewitched, Mary Tyler Moore, Growing Pains, and even Malcolm in the Middle that have their own contained, familiar stories that, frankly, I found refreshing. They weren't even parodies of period pieces, they just created episodes from those eras, and I kind of loved it. 
There were minuscule hints that something wasn't right, but the show really didn't open up until episode 4, and then the story really started to feel like it belonged in the Marvel Universe. Wanda and Vision were never my favorite characters in the films, and although they showed up in books that I read as a kid, I'm not really familiar with their history or their stories. I really love them here. Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany have loads of chemistry, and they really got a chance to shine. Catherine Hahn, who is always amazing, is pitch perfect here as Agatha Harkness, a powerful witch hoping to usurp Wanda's power while disguising herself as Wanda's nosy neighbor. There's not a weak link in the cast. Everybody is fantastic. And recasting Quicksilver? That was fucking brilliant, even if it didn't end up leading to some big X-Men reveal that I'm sure a lot of people were hoping for. It still was amazing. The show is an excellent examination of how Wanda deals with grief, examining her tug-of-war with freeing the residents of Westview from what must be a terrible existence and losing her family, or keeping up a cloak of normalcy with this idyllic town and a family life that doesn't actually exist. It also deals with Vision slowly discovering that Westview is Wanda's doing, and he might not be what he thinks he is. There's a lot of heart in the show and some great quotes about love and loss. For horror fans, there's also a, an element of horror in a few short portions that concern Salem witches that I thought was surprisingly effective for a Marvel show. Like, it was really creepy. Now, I've seen a lot of complaints about the show being boring, and this is one show that I think really benefits from being a week-to-week -week show, especially through the first four episodes. I also think that people expecting every episode to be a 30-minute epic in the spirit of Endgame are going to be disappointed. It is just not that kind of show. I loved Catherine Hahn as one of the main foils in the show, but I did not find the character of Agatha Harkness particularly interesting, which continues to plague Marvel films. The villains are often the weakest links, and I think that's the case again here. Her motivation was simply that she wanted to snag Wanda's power from her, and I didn't find that compelling. And although I was happy with how the show ended as a nine-episode series, I don't think that it stuck the landing in terms of really getting me excited for what's coming next. We know that Wanda is going to be ultra-powerful, and we know that she doesn't really understand what she's getting into, but we don't know what that means for the rest of the world. There are still a ton of unanswered questions, including why fake Vision didn't tell Wanda about Vision 2, where he went, and what's going on with Monica Rambeau. Speaking of which, if you haven't seen Miss Marvel going in, the final scene of the show might confuse the heck out of you. The show on Disney Plus looks beautiful. Uh, the only complaint I have about the look of the show was the CGI, specifically in the final episode. Vision fighting Vision and Wanda flying did not look great. Still passable, but I'd be lying if it didn't make me nervous for the effects bonanza that Falcon and Winter Soldier promises to be with a smaller budget than WandaVision. In closing, I had almost no interest in WandaVision going into the season, but I'll be damned if I wasn't eagerly awaiting each episode from week to week. If you go in with the right expectations and are prepared to have some fun, I think it's a great time. Elizabeth Olsen is super charming as the Scarlet Witch, and Paul Bettany is amazing as he always is. Disney's first Marvel show, WandaVision, is a hit. Mm -hmm.